Um, but uh, let's go ahead and get going. Um, and what I want to do today is stay uh, with John the Baptizer a little bit and keep um, talking about him and particularly uh, his relationship with Jesus. Um, as I've said, uh, both of these figures, John and Jesus, both show up in Josephus's history. And the picture of John that you get is really quite similar to what you have in the gospel accounts. Um, similar kind of person, similar kind of wilderness setting. Um, uh, the baptism is presented a little bit differently by Josephus. It's more of a sign of um, faithfulness and obedience than it is a baptism of repentance. But it's still a picture of people going out um, for that baptism. And then of John being a threat to Herod. Um, that John's popularity was so great and his voice so prophetic, if you will, um, that uh, Herod took him captive. And then Josephus also records um, the death of John. Um, it looks like uh, while the biblical account has this kind of immediacy to it, um, that the head was sort of brought in, you know, to the party, as it were, um, that that is probably not actually the case, that John would have been located in a different fortress um, or location, but that the order would have been given and um, his life taken. Um, as we think about John, then the two episodes that I want to um, just include here that come later in the gospel accounts are the um, question that John sends to Jesus from prison as to whether Jesus is actually the one that uh, John thought he was. And then the second is John's death and Jesus's response to that death. As you may recall last week in <clears throat> talking about John, um, a couple of basic points. One is that we ended with this picture of John deferring to Jesus and then Jesus deferring to John. At the end of John's gospel, chapter three, you have this picture of John saying, he must increase, I must decrease. It's a very poignant moment of John uh, yielding to Jesus and then Jesus seeing that his own followers are starting to gather. He is gaining in popularity. And so he very deliberately moves out of the way, goes up into Galilee. And the beginning of John chapter four, you have him making that move, going up through Samaria and, and staying out of John's way. Um, the picture that you then get consistently in the four gospels is that Jesus's own sense of timing and calling is to yield to John and wait on John um, until uh, John has completed his ministry. And that pretty clearly comes at the point that John is imprisoned. That's specifically mentioned in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, and Matthew 4, verse 12, and then in Luke 3, verses 18 and 19. John mentions simply um, that John's gospel mentions that John the baptizer had not yet been put in prison um, when we get to the beginning of John uh, chapter 4. So that's a, a, obviously a crucial moment then. And at that point, uh, Jesus steps out and begins a public ministry. Um, the two episodes then that I want us to just look at a little bit are the question that John sends from prison. And um, I'll try not to just jump around from gospel to gospel this morning. So I would say, try to get open to Matthew's gospel and go to chapter 11. And then if we um, move around into the other Gospels, or if you just want to leaf over and look at things while we're doing this, um, just keep a finger or a bookmark in Matthew, um, and I'll try to keep us there until late in the class, and then, we'll, then we will move 
to that handout that I sent you. Everybody see that handout? Did it get to you? Okay, good. Um, so in chapter 11 of Matthew, um, verse 2, um, now when John in prison heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to Jesus, are you the coming one or shall we look for someone else? And just that much for the moment. Um, and, and it raises the question, why, why did John have this question? Why did it become the point of doubt that it did? Um, and, and I'm not sure, but um, I, I don't think it's because John expected some kind of kingdom to get set up or some kind of a coup that would overthrow the government or Herod or something, um, get John released from prison or something. I, I don't think it would be along those lines at all. We saw in the beginning of John's gospel um, the language of John the baptizer as he introduced Jesus to his own followers, which was, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Um, and, and that seems to be the image that John has of Jesus, um, that he is a sacrificial lamb, not a political revolutionary. Um, and so you wonder then, what, what is the problem? And I think maybe Jesus gives us a clue to the answer to that question down later in Matthew 11, um, in verse 16 and following, John says, um, to what shall I compare this generation? You're like a bunch of children playing in the marketplace who call out to each other and say, we played the flute for you and you wouldn't dance. We sang a dirge and you wouldn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say he has a demon the son of man comes eating and drinking, and they say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated <clears throat> by her deeds or her fruit or her children. Um, I, I think what Jesus may be suggesting here is that while John was in prison, some of what he was hearing about Jesus was the reputation that Jesus was getting. Um, in lots of places, which was, he, as Jesus says, uh, getting to be known as a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners, um, and, and really mixing it up with the world. There, there was not a, a, an image of the kind of asceticism that John had adopted at all. And so in ways that may not be obvious, John and Jesus adopted very different lifestyles John went out into the wilderness, gave up everything, lived on locusts and wild honey, and slept out every night um, in the desert. Uh, Jesus, on the other hand, while he wasn't living in opulent palaces or something, was mixing it up, having dinners and in all these settings where his reputation was that he was a drunkard and a glutton um, and a friend of sinners. And, and I think the difference may have just been so striking that it really did trouble John. He had, he had given up everything. And now along comes Jesus, who's supposed to be this messianic figure. And he seems to be just mixing it up with all kinds of folks. Um, and so Jesus gives us this picture of the two of them being very different. And, and, and then the, the responses to them being like children in the playground where, you know, you've got some kids who no matter what you try to play, they don't want to play it. Um, they, they either don't want to dance when it's time when you sing or they don't want to play funeral when it's time to play funeral or whatever it is. Um, and, and so Jesus is saying, yeah, we're two very different people 
in our manner, in our style. Um, but reality will win in the end. Wisdom will be vindicated by her fruit in both John's case and in Jesus's case. I, I think that may be what actually tempted John to wonder about Jesus, uh, whether someone who, who, as far as John was hearing, could be so different would in fact be the Messiah that John thought he was. Um, I'm not sure, but that's, I find it interesting that you get those verses 16 to um, 19, and you have a parallel passage uh, similar to that in Luke um, that describes it in a similar way. Um, and then you go back to earlier in the chapter, and you get Jesus's response to uh, John's question. And Jesus responds in a way that clarifies both who Jesus is and also who John is. Back in uh, Matthew 11, verses 4 to 6, Jesus answers, um, when, when, when he gets the question, are you the coming one or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answers in verse 4 and says, go and report to John the things that you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not stumble over me. Um, now, what's Jesus doing in that response? On the one hand, it's, it's sort of at the most obvious level, he is pointing to miraculous works that he has performed that testify to his special power and authority. But there's actually more going on there than may be obvious. He is, he is taking us back to the Hebrew scriptures, to the, to the Old Testament um, prophetic passages, and in this case, taking us back to a portion of Isaiah that we often don't think to go back to. Um, if you're familiar with the prophecies of Isaiah, you may well know the early prophecies in chapters 6 to 12 that's sometimes called the Book of Emmanuel. If you're in Christmas services, you will hear passages from that section frequently cited. Um, once you get to chapter 40, you get the uh, prophecies that were particularly referent, uh, fulfilled by John and all four Gospels see him as the fulfillment of that voice that cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And then as you go on from there, you get up into the 50s, and particularly in chapter 53, you have the passage that is known best as the passage of the suffering servant, the description of someone it would seem um, uh, suffering from crucifixion, from, from, a, from a death, a kind of sacrificial death. And that's a passage that is just very rich in prophetic kind of um, description. Um, and so if you read around that chapter, chapters 52 and 53, and you go all the way back to 40 and then read to the end of the book, you'll see all sorts of resonances and interesting things happening. But passages that we often don't look at are, are the chapters in the 30s, uh, 20s and 30s. Um, and Jesus is actually taking us into that section of Isaiah with these, um, with these comments. Um, again, if you want to keep a finger in Matthew 11 um, and go back to Isaiah, um, we can't do this at length. And if you want an interesting study, start around um, chapter... 26, 27, um, and read on through to chapter 36 of Isaiah. There will be several 
um, passages such as laying in zone in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a cornerstone for the foundation. Um, it's that kind of imagery that you'd get in Isaiah 20, 28. And then as you go through, um, Isaiah 29, verses 18 and 19, um, refers to this day coming. Um, verse 18, on that day, the deaf will hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The afflicted also shall increase, increase their gladness in the Lord. The needy of mankind shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. In chapter 32, we have reference to a king who will reign righteously in verse 1. In chapter 2, the streams of water flowing in the dry country, the shade of a huge rock in a parched land, in a dry land. Um, verse 3, the eyes of those who see will not be blind, the ears of those who hear will listen, the mind of the hasty will discern the truth, the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak clearly. You get that kind of imagery. And then in chapter 35, the first verse there says, the wilderness and the desert will be glad, the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. Um, and then you go down to verses, um, the end of verse 2, they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Um, and then verses 5 and 6, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. Um, it's particularly those verses there in chapter 35 of Isaiah that Jesus is particularly pointing to, but as is often the case with those kinds of pointers, you, you want that pointer to take you to a much larger portion of Scripture. And I would say it's, it's probably a, a 10 or 12 chapters of Isaiah that culminate right there at the end of chapter 35 where those verses are found. Um, so it's taking you to that whole development of a kind of a day of the Lord that is to come a day of, of waters of life flowing, and then of these kinds of healing um, uh, that, that are listed here. It is interesting that in Isaiah, what you then have is a four-chapter insertion of a bit of history around King Hezekiah, chapters 36 to 39. And then chapter 40, you pick up in the sort of second uh, 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 portion of Isaiah, and you pick up with the prophecy, comfort, comfort my people, uh, a voice in the wilderness um, comes to prepare the way of the Lord. And so in terms of the sort of prophetic voice of this book, you go directly from chapter 35, the kinds of things that Jesus has just cited here in Matthew 11, right into the prophecies about John the baptizer in chapter 40. Um, and so it's an interesting linkage. And from chapter 40 on, you move into... Um, these striking passages that take you to the notion of the servant, initially presented as Israel, as a nation, and then gradually something starts to happen to that imagery in which the servant moves from seeming to have the whole community in mind to having an individual in, in view somehow, um, though those are always interesting and puzzling um, processes to, to think through. At any rate, there's just a tremendous amount going on throughout the book of Isaiah, and it's interesting to see the different points at which the New Testament writers, and specifically Jesus, in several cases, um, employs those prophecies, and here that's what Jesus is doing. John knows this reference. 
John, John knows this prophecy and knows the linkages, um, both with regard to the, the coming of the day of the Lord, which is now in Jesus, and also to John's own role as the prophetic voice that prepares the way uh, for this one. So, all of that to say, as simple as Jesus' response may seem in verses 4 and 5, there's actually a lot being communicated, and particularly to someone like the prophet John, who knows this uh, Isaiah prophecy and its tradition um, pretty well. From there, you go to Jesus' um, response that has to do with John, um, and you see that down in um, verse 7, as the questioners were going away, Jesus began to say to the people around him concerning John, so what did you go out into the wilderness to look at? The reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Nah, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. So why did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes, I tell you. And one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it was written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Um, verse 13, all the prophets and law prophesied until John, and if you care to accept it, he himself is the Elijah who was to come. He is the right understanding of that, of that prophetic word of an Elijah who was to come. And what Jesus is citing there is the book of Malachi, I realized in last week's class, when I referred to this, I think I called it Micah instead of saying Malachi, so correct that one. Um, in chapter 3 of Malachi, and it's easy to find, it's just a few pages back in your Bible, it's the uh, last chapter, last book of the Old Testament. In Malachi 3, verse 1 is where you get the reference of what Jesus has just referred to, where he says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way or prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, declares the Lord of hosts. And then in chapter 4, um, you have a similar uh, word about a coming day. And then the last two verses of chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. So when John is asked initially, are you Elijah? John says, no, I'm not Elijah. And in the strict sense, he wasn't. But then when it gets to the question of how to interpret these passages and what's meant by Malachi there as to this comment about an Elijah who will come, Jesus says the right understanding of that is that, in fact, John the baptizer is the Elijah who was to come. Um, so that's a rather significant piece of the puzzle, I think, for uh, the entire story. Again, the idea that you've got this character of John in the story is, is its own fascinating piece. Um, and then the one, the one further question, just real quickly, would be, or the one further episode, is John's death. Um, we have it in um, Matthew uh, 14, if you go over just a couple of chapters. 
And you'll see in the early verses there, I won't read through these, but um, this is just this terribly sad, hor horrible story. Um, this woman that uh, Herod married was um, not a pleasant woman. And so she takes advantage of this opportunity to get rid of this enemy. Um, it was Herod's marriage with her that John was uh, condemning. He had basically just taken his brother's wife. And she was glad to get rid of John. So she takes advantage of this opportunity when Herod makes a foolish promise and uh, has to act on it and has John beheaded in prison. At the end, we're told in verse 12 that John's disciples came then and took away the body and buried it. And they went and reported to Jesus. And it's interesting, Matthew's placement of this um, leads then to verse 13, when Jesus heard this news, he withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place by himself. Matthew's the only one that gives us that little detail and the only one who gives us that framing of uh, the account of the death of John. But I, I think it's, it's poignant and significant that Jesus' response is to just want to go find a lonely place and uh, be able to grieve over this uh, dear brother. Um, yeah. It is interesting that Jesus goes to find that lonely place, and then the next thing that happens is the feeding of the 5,000, that the, the crowds are thronging around him, and so he comes out of his own solitude and grief and continues to um, meet the needs of people around him. There are a couple of other uh, in interesting allusions to John late in the story. Um, I won't try to pull those in at this point, but, but I'll just say again, you could have the whole story of Jesus and never bring a John the baptizer into view. It is interesting. Not only is he in view, he is in view to the full extent that he is um, and plays the role that he does. And then the two of them together, both being rooted in these uh, passages in the Hebrew Bible become all the more striking because you've got the two of them. Um, let me just pause there and ask if there are any questions or thoughts that you wanted to pursue further with regard to John and Jesus at this point before we sort of move over to Jesus stepping out into public ministry. I have a quick question. Um, I was curious what the uh, significance is of in the in the Isaiah passage, see, I send forth my messenger before you who will prepare your, uh, your path. Um, does that connect back to Exodus at all when um, God tells the, the people of Israel, like, I will send an angel before thee to guide mm -hmm. thee into the land I have prepared? Yes, I, I think it does have a connection there. Um, I'm looking to see if I've got written down. Good it. Yeah, Exodus 23.20, I think, is one of the places where you have a phrase very much like that. Um, the, 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 uh, the phrase of sending my messenger before you. That motif does appear more than just in the, in the prophets with regard to the preparer of the way of the Lord. There is also the angel that goes before the people. And I'm not sure whether even Moses may be referred to at that, in that same imagery at one point as, the, as God's messenger who goes before the people. 
But yes, you're right. There is that kind of linkage into the Torah as well as into the prophets. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting. I like looked up that passage or, or that chapter, Exodus 23, uh, before. And um, right before that line, they talk about uh, the three feasts, including the Feast of the Passover and the Feast mm-hmm. of Harvest and the Feast of the Gathering. So I didn't know if that related theologically to um, Jesus uh, at the Passover or as the Passover lamb. Um, I don't know that I would try to do too much with that. I think in Exodus 23, you're, um, for the most part, unpacking um, more of the ordinances and laws, and, and particularly around the idea of worship, that start with the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. So you've got the first giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and then following that, as I recall, um, you have, as you say, a description of things like how to carry out the festivals. Um, and then I think it goes on into uh, priesthood and um, yeah, directions for the tabernacle, um, all that sort of thing, all of the worship rules and regulations and, and expectations. Um, it is in that context where the people are told that the Lord's angel will go before them um, and I, I, I would want to be careful about making too much of the connect, connect, trying to connect Jesus to those feasts at that point, though I do think Jesus fulfills those feasts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just in sort of terms of being fair to the text itself. Mm-hmm. One, one of the things we did get into yesterday afternoon, though, is um, you've got some some bits in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament where um, where they're really just very striking comments that, that beg some kind of account, like, like the end of Malachi, Elijah's coming. Well, how are we supposed to understand that? But, but it looks like somebody's coming who's going to be Elijah. I mean, it's got, it's got that sense of pointing to something in the future, to somebody in the future. And there are some passages like that that are very specific and really seem to point towards something. And then there are other passages that if any of us on the screen right now were reading them, it would not occur to us that they are predictive in any way. Um, And then upon some further thought, you start to see how maybe they are. And then there are other passages that really aren't predictive at all. But once you get Christ, and you have the lens of Christ and the New Testament writers, and you look back through that lens at those earlier scriptures, you start to see ways in which they become fulfilled in Christ that I wouldn't say were predictive per se, but but you have a lens through which to look in which the meanings of those earlier texts start to take on, on far more significance. Um, and so I always want to be fair to the older texts, to those Hebrew texts, and not try to see prediction where, frankly, it's not really there. Um, but also, let those New Testament writers help us in thinking about how to read those older texts. Uh, if you want a great study of this, read the book of Hebrews and particularly in those opening chapters, see what that author is doing with some of those texts and, and realize his lens 
just opens up those texts in ways that see the Messiah now understood as Jesus on page after page and in place after place. The entire book of Psalms, for instance, becomes sort of Jesus's songbook, as it were, um, and book of prayer and worship. And it's really quite remarkable. So there's a, there's a fascinating range of ways that the New Testament scriptures will relate to the Old Testament. Um, and, and I always want to be careful to try to do justice, frankly, going in both directions, um, in more than two directions, probably, uh, on those texts. The Psalm, one of the, I'll just give you one instance from Hebrews. Um, psalm 22 is a well-known psalm and always one of them that is cited as messianic. Um, a, a, and, and that becomes a category that I that I don't want to see as simply having maybe six or eight psalms in it. I want to see 150 psalms in that messianic category. But at any rate, um, Psalm 22 begins with the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it continues with the most extraordinary description of someone being crucified. Now, that's the first two-thirds of the psalm or so, maybe first three-quarters of the psalm. There's imagery that's just image after image after image that is then picked up in the gospel accounts of Jesus' death. But when the writer of Hebrews quotes that psalm, he doesn't quote any of that. He quotes a, a verse from the end of that psalm, which is a picture of someone leading the congregation in song. And, and that's that's where the writer of Hebrews says, we've got the Messiah. Um, Christ is the lead worshiper, now resurrected and leading the heavenly choir in song, is sort of the picture that you end up with. It would never occur to me to read the end of that psalm the way I would fairly readily read the first two thirds of that psalm. Um, but Hebrews is unabashed in seeing that entire psalm as having this kind of meaning. And then you go from there to some others that are even more striking. Um, let me go ahead and push push on just so we um, get to uh, get to Jesus's own public ministry. What we what we have gotten to at this point, though we haven't stopped and, and looked at it particularly or thought about it, is that Jesus did come during John's ministry to be baptized by John. Um, <clears throat> and then after that baptism. The Spirit leads him out into the wilderness for 40 days. Um, I'll just point out one or two quick things about this much. Um, the baptism, and again, if you want to just stay in Matthew, you'll find it in chapter 3. And, um, and I will go ahead and say, this is one of those points where I'm really puzzled but because of the difference between how Matthew and John um, present the baptism. Matthew presents the baptism in a way that, um, let me see, where do we have it? Uh, verse 13, John comes to be baptized, and John says to him, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? With a pretty clear sense that John knows who this Jesus is and feels a little silly um, baptizing him. Now, exactly what that means is hard to say, but when you read John's gospel, John presents this episode and, and has John the baptizer say that he would not have known who 
Jesus was if it weren't for the Spirit descending on him and the voice from heaven. Honestly, I'm not sure how to put those two things together. Um, it may be that there is a knowledge that John has of Jesus, that he knows he's this cousin and quite an extraordinary person. Um, but honestly, it's it's hard for me to know quite what John the Gospel writer is trying to say at that point. Um, Matthew's presentation, and I think it's in keeping with Mark and Luke, is that John does know his own role and he knows Jesus to be this Lamb of God. Um, and, and the one for whom he is preparing the way. So what it would mean in John's gospel when John the baptizer says he would not have known were it not for the uh, descent of the, of the dove, the spirit on him. I'm, I'm honestly just not sure how to read that. But just to let you know, it's one, one of those places where I just kind of scratch my own head. Um, but you have Jesus baptized, and, and what is common to all of the accounts is that upon the baptism, you then have... Um, the, the, uh, verse 16 of chapter three in Matthew, the heavens were open and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and coming on him and behold a voice out of the heavens saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Um, it is worth noting at this point that when the voice from heaven says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, Jesus has not worked any miracles he has not, as far as we can tell, been preaching in the synagogues. He has not made appearances in Jerusalem at the temple. Um, he has not created a following or even really begun to have one. Uh, he has not stepped into what would be sort of maybe more identifiably his, his messianic um, work, per se. What he has done at this point is he has been a son and a brother he has been a citizen, a neighbor. He has learned the trade of carpentry, it would seem. Um, and he has uh, been, been a young man from Nazareth. Um, it, it's worth noting that in all of that, um, there's a lot at stake uh, in that process, of course, in ways that are not obvious to anybody at that point. He was also accomplishing all righteousness and fulfilling the law, and fulfilling righteousness. Um, but one of the books we read when we were doing a lot of faith and vocation um, stuff at the center a few years ago was by Tom Nelson, um, Work Matters, it's called. And, and, and this is what Tom points out in that book, that um, part of what the Heavenly Father is affirming is his incarnate son does good work. <laughs> And, and that work matters, and that being a son and a brother and a neighbor matters, and, and that to declare these things as good and this man as good at them and as a good person before he's entered into any of what we then associate with Jesus is so distinctively messianic and Christological is, is, uh, is worth, worth noting, I think. Um, so you have the baptism, and then the Spirit leads him out into the wilderness, my own um, theory is that he went to Horeb um, to follow both Moses and Elijah in their own journeys and that the 40 days out there in that wilderness may well have been to go to some of the places that they had gone. But that's total speculation on my part, so make nothing of it. Um, and, and then uh, he is tempted by Satan 
Um, I will just say uh, you have a parallel account in Luke chapter 4. Uh, interesting to notice that the order of the events is different. The order of the temptations is different in Matthew and Luke. You can just kind of tuck that away for the moment, but it does just kind of start to raise these questions about what the different authors are doing with this material and how they're handling it when something as simple as listing those three temptations turns out to be a little bit different in the two. Then what you have is um, the, uh, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 4, verse 17, well, verse 12, first of all, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he heads up into Galilee, and in verse 13, settles in Capernaum, and then in verse 17, from that time on, Jesus began to proclaim and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, there is together then with um, Jesus beginning his ministry, a move to Capernaum. You have a reference to it there in verse 13 of Matthew 4, uh, that he leaves Nazareth, the hometown where he had grown up, and settled in Capernaum, which is up on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Matthew, as is typical, particularly in the early portions of his gospel, connects this to Old Testament um, predictive prophecy as well. Um, and then you uh, start into Jesus's ministry. This is probably a good place to switch over to that handout if you want to get that in front of you. Um, and we'll sort of switch to Mark's account. This is where Mark sort of lays out the quick account. As we've said before, he moves very quickly into the adult ministry um, of Jesus with no, not much of a prologue at all. So while Matthew, Luke, and John get us into chapter 4 before we get to something like the public ministry of Jesus. We're there by verse 14 of Mark. Um, that's where John's taken into custody, and Jesus now comes preaching the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's verses 14 and 15 of Mark 1. Um, and then you have calling of disciples, Simon and Andrew and James and John. And then verse 21, they went into Capernaum. Jesus goes into the synagogue. He's teaching. People are struck by his authority, particularly as a teacher. There is someone with an unclean spirit, and Jesus casts out this unclean spirit who acknowledges him as the Holy One of God. They come out of the synagogue down in verse 29 on that left column, go into Simon, Simon's home. Simon's mother-in-law is sick. Jesus touches and heals her. And then verse 32, when um, evening comes, others are brought to him as well. This start in Capernaum is, is sort of the start of things. Um, if you go over to Luke 4, up at the top of that right column, you'll see a very similar sequence. He went down to Capernaum, was teaching on the Sabbath. A few lines further, a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. Down in verse 38, you have the account of Simon's mother-in-law. Verse 40, as sun was setting, others were brought um, and he healed them. And um, then the other thing that's common is just a couple verses down further. Verse 42 of Luke 4, when day came, Jesus left, went to a secluded place, the crowds were searching for him and came to him, tried to keep him from going away. But he said, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for 
for I was sent for this purpose. Um, and, uh, and Mark presents a similar um, movement there, that, that that day in Capernaum is sort of the start, and now he's going to be going throughout Galilee, preaching, teaching, healing. Um, what you do have here, though, is, is an interesting question that emerges, um, which is, excuse me, um, that on, in Mark, you'll see that uh, Jesus calls Simon, Andrew, James, and John, says, come follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. They leave their nets, go with him, and they go into Capernaum, and then you have the description of that day in Capernaum. In Luke's account, you have the description of that day in Capernaum, and at the end of it, you have an account of Jesus calling Simon, Peter, Andrew, and James, and John. So the question is, what's going on there? Um... Are they the same episodes, but just placed somewhat differently? That, that would not be a big deal if that were the case. And, and you do have that. We will see that happen, um, even, even from a sort of ancient writing of history standpoint. Um, that kind of thing would happen in a historical account, much less in, in writings like these that sort of defy... Um, genre genre um it's one of those places it's a good example of of where i think it's important to read carefully and it's important to to read all four gospels and work them together and then read them again and work them together some more and read them again and keep working it it's and and so part of i'll go ahead and just give you my theory on this um if for no other reason than we're about to run out of time. Um, as, you, as you know, I've already said, I think Mark just gives us the quick, basic account. And, and I think we have Mark and Matthew before we get Luke. Um, I think Mark probably comes first, but whether Mark or Matthew comes first, Mark gives us the quick account. Um, Matthew then works with the material in interesting ways. When you get to Luke then, my theory is that Luke has both Mark and Matthew available to him, either in written or oral form, and I think very likely written form, along with probably some other documents. And, and then he does some research himself. As he says in his introduction, he's trying to give us something more like a, hist a simple history. And I think by that he is emphasizing the chronological um, telling of that history. And so what Luke will do is, because there are places that are very confusing, if all you've got is Mark and Matthew, the first thing Luke does is clarify for the confused reader. Um, and, and then what, will, what I find interesting is that when Matthew and Mark tell the story the same way, sort of chronologically, Luke drops out because it seems to me he doesn't have anything he needs to add at that point, nothing to clarify. And then the other thing Luke does is he will, he will add material that you won't find in either of the other accounts. Um, given the sort of logic of Luke and, and what, what, I, what I take him to be doing in his project, um, and then given the fact that this episode of disciple calling disciples 
follows that day in Capernaum. I'm inclined to think that this is an example of Luke adding something, that this is not the same episode as you have in Mark 1 and in Matthew um, uh, 4, I guess it would be. Um, that, that, that Luke is actually adding something here. And, there's, and, and in addition to just sort of the logic of, um, of Luke as, a, as, as to his project, um, I, I would say, number one, simply that you have one episode before that day in Capernaum. Now in Luke, it comes after the day in Capernaum. It is interesting as you start reading it, verse 1 of chapter 5. I don't have chapter 5 marked, but that's two-thirds of the way down that right column. It happened while the crowd was pressing around him. Th that you've got a picture now of Jesus is underway. His ministry is underway, as we have in those verses 42 to 44. Um, just before that. And so now the crowds are really pressing around him, so much so that his idea is to say to Simon, can I get in your boat and we push 15 feet offshore here so I can just stand in your boat and talk to all these people on the shore? And that's the picture of what you've got here. Um, so you've got crowds have started following him, which would suggest maybe at least a little time has passed as these crowds are starting to come. It's interesting in verse 3, then, when he gets into one of the boats, the boat is identified as Simon's, as if we sort of know Simon. And so they, he gets into Simon's boat, pushes out, and says to Simon then, will you push out? And uh, after, after he had taught for a while, let's go out and do some fishing. Simon answers and says, Master, we've worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. Simon addresses him as Master, and knows to do what he says, then you get this catch of fish that is so overwhelming they need both boats to get it in, and it's clear that something really remarkable is happening here, that Jesus has even power over the fish. And Simon Peter sees it in verse 8. He falls down at Jesus' feet and says, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. This is an interesting response, isn't it? This is more than just come follow me and Peter leaves his nets and goes and follows. This is a confrontation on Simon's part that runs far deeper. It's a confrontation with himself, particularly himself vis-a-vis -vis Jesus. And his response is, is to call Jesus Lord and say, you should have nothing to do with me. I am a sinful man. Jesus then says to Simon in the last verse there, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. It is interesting that the imagery is that of fishing for men instead of fish in both passages. In the Matthew and Mark accounts, um, it is uh, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And the term is a fisherman there, sort of the standard term for fishermen. In Luke, it is, it has a sort of more forceful tone to it of Jesus declaring to them. It's not a sort of an if clause. If you follow, this will happen. It is, it is a declaration from now on, you will be capturing men. And, and it, and it's a different term. It's a sort of a you will be catching, capturing um, men. And, and it's got a, a tone to me of sort of an additional step. When you put that together with what we saw at the beginning of John's gospel then, 
you have in John's gospel, chapter one, John the baptizer introducing some of his followers to Jesus. That includes Simon, Peter, and Andrew. So they are introduced to Jesus there. Back in Galilee, Jesus invites them in Mark and Matthew's accounts to follow him, and they will become fishers of men. And then Luke gives us, I think, a third development here in which you have not just an invitation, but an affirmation. Um, you will be followers and you will become fishers of men with me. Come. And now, instead of describing them as leaving um, their boats and their nets or John and James leaving their dad in the, in the boats there and walking off with Jesus, now it is, and now they leave everything, is the language there in Luke. And, and I'm inclined to see it then as this additional development. And frankly, fi I find it helpful um, as, as a, uh, you know, would-be disciple myself um, who struggles and stumbles. I, I've, I've struggled sometimes with these accounts in Matthew and Mark when I've just kind of let them stand in isolation and kind of thought, man, Jesus walks up to these guys. They seem to be total strangers. And he says, follow me. And they just go, okay. And they walk off with him. And I, I go, really? So it's kind of, it's been very interesting to kind of go, well, you know, there's more of a story there, apparently. And there is a process and there is a development in which taking specifically Peter and, and Simon, Peter and Andrew, they are introduced. There's already background there in terms of that baptism of repentance that they've experienced with John. Now they move to Jesus. He invites them. They start to follow. They're still with him, but still fishermen. And then there is this further step where they follow and that's by no means the end of the story, is it? I, I encourage you, take that setup to read the first six chapters of Mark then. Because I think part of what Mark does is sort of just take that starting point of being a disciple of Jesus and, um, and, and walking with him. And, and that the perspective you're going to get in Mark is, is, I think, uh, a lot of people think it is, it is informed largely by, by Peter, but I think it's not just limited to Peter. I think it is the experience of the followers of Jesus, particularly his disciples. And with this combination of John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, we're sort of off and running in that story. Um, so for next week, try to read those first six chapters of Mark. And then if you can, um, also it would help to get into Matthew um, chapters 5 to 7 are the Sermon on the Mount, and then chapters 8 and 9 are some episodes. Um, some of them will be familiar to you because you'll already have seen them in Mark and Luke, um, but it will then raise interesting questions as to um, how to understand how the three Gospels relate to each other with regard to those episodes as well. Um, so do that for next week, and uh, if anybody wants to linger and chat for a minute, I'll be glad to do it. Um, but thanks again. Have a great one.